0: Hello everyone, I'm Najib Baki, founder and managing director at Tinsley Park, a private equity platform and an advisory firm. Welcome to another episode of Tinsley Park Talks, which is a global networking and leadership platform where we interview industry legends from finance uh, to te- from finance to tech and from policy experts to intellectuals. In these digital interviews, we discuss great ideas around investing, entrepreneurship, solving complex problems, and all other lessons of life. Today's episode is uh, on negotiations. You know, if you're an investor or an entrepreneur or just really anyone from any walk of life, you you most uh, likely have had to negotiate on a transaction. Uh, So today our guest is a Harvard Business School professor who uh, teaches or taught at Harvard Business School and and he writes about negotiations, designed a really uh, great technique around negotiations. And we're going to talk about how it's useful in our lives. Uh, So let me introduce you, David Lacks. uh, David Lacks is a friend. David Lacks studied math, statistics, and social science at Princeton, uh, Stanford, and Harvard, where he received a PhD in statistics and began his professional career as a professor at Harvard Business School, where he taught HBS's first course solely on negotiation and co-founded HBS's first executive course on negotiation. While there, uh, David co-authored The Manager as Negotiator, which is one uh, of the five or six most cited books on negotiation. He took a leave of absence from HBS to uh, work as an investment banker at a firm that specialized in the restructurings of companies in highly unionized industries, and then worked for five years for a New York family office. Analyzing and negotiating private equity and venture capital investments, and working with portfolio companies, uh, he then began his began advising companies in complex negotiations and uh, formed Lack Sabenius LLC with his HBS co-author to advise in negotiations and to help companies improve their capability to do consistently better in negotiations. In two thousand six, he and uh, co-author James Sabenius combined their academic knowledge with what they had learned about negotiating deals to write uh, 3d negotiations this book right here i highly recommend it it serves as the methodology for laxebenius's consulting and capability building engagements uh, in addition to running laxebenius uh, david writes articles teaches occasional executive education programs at harvard uh, does pro bono projects for example he you know this is no big deal check this out he worked with the Carter Center to help end the civil war in Nepal and later set up a program to train senior congressional staffers to reach agreements across party lines. And uh, he also co founds entrepreneurial ventures um, and uh, his latest venture is called Riva, which uses AI to assist coaches in uh, helping job candidates negotiate their job offers. Uh, David is a very important guest uh, and a good friend. I am, I'm very excited to have David on the show. David, welcome. You have to unmute. <laughs> Thank, thanks, Najib. Delighted to be here. Should be a lot of fun. So, David, you're originally from uh, Massachusetts, but you're, you're visiting Florida, uh, I take yeah. it, right? Yes. Is that your, that's your view? Is that, is that what you're actually looking yeah. at in front of you, right?
1: Yes, that is uh, that is um, the view of uh, the, the out of my office here in, in a house in uh, Sanibel Island, Florida. So, although I live in Massachusetts, I go to nice places when the weather is not as much fun in Massachusetts.
0: For sure, no, I the, you're very lucky to be in Florida right now. It's it's really cold in other parts of the country. I'm I'm sure in Massachusetts too right now. Yes. So, David, um, tell us about your upbringing. How um, what events shaped your life and, you know, and, you know, kind of how did your academic journey take you where you are today? Sure. So,
1: uh, I come from a very academic family. My father was a brilliant theoretical physicist and my mother, ha- uh, has a PhD in romance languages. And so taught Spanish literature, um, for earlier in her, in her career. Um, and so I, I um, like my father, I liked math a lot and but I really wanted even when I was in high school I realized I wanted it to have something to do with people. Um, I got a job uh, at a, where near where I lived in New Jersey was Bell Labs, which was the probably the finest research institu- private research institution in the world at the time working for the statistics department there writing software so I was probably 15 or 14. And I got a job, they actually paid me to write software and it was working on something called exploratory data analysis, which um, was very interesting stuff. Um, And I was just writing a software package for them. And then uh, it turned out that the founder of exploratory data analysis was a guy uh, named John Tukey, who was a professor at Princeton. And uh, by happenstance, Princeton is where I got into and went to college. Um, and a fabulous place to get an undergraduate education. But I figured, you know, um, I could always use a job to help support myself. And so I went to the statistics department and said, I have a job, Work. I had a job working at Bell Labs uh, during the summers, writing software. Some of it's on exploratory data analysis. Would you have a job for me? I didn't realize in effect, I was working for the same guy because John Tukey was also affiliated with Bell Labs. And they hired me right away to keep doing some of this, more or less the stuff that I was doing uh, in, um, you know at Bell Labs. And I saw this is great, great field, people hire me. Uh-huh. Statistics is, is sort of applied math, which I, is sort of where I wanted to go. And so I became a statistics major uh, but at, at, Bell, at, at Princeton, but I studied game theory, a lot of economics, and a lot of social and cognitive uh, psychology even personality theory. And, and so, and I love that. Uh, and, I, and I worked very hard on uh, a, uh, I asked John Tukey to be my advisor. I worked extremely hard on my senior thesis, which Princeton requires um, on a, a, a very, what was an obscure topic, robust estimation of scale. So how, instead of a standard deviation, how do you measure how dispersed a distribution is um, when you're not sure that it comes from a normal, when you're not sure the data comes from a normal distribution.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I'm not sure how I did it because I played on, I played on a minor varsity team. I had a girlfriend, I took courses. And I think from 10 AM to 4 AM every night, I wrote worked on my senior thesis. I don't know if I slept much, wow. but um, it turned out that that senior thesis was really good. And I, I learned later that my advisor said I got results much better than they thought were possible. When I applied to graduate school, uh, I started at Stanford because I thought that was the best department in the world. And they were nice to me, but it was really uh, much more theoretical than I wanted. And so I called up Harvard and I said, you may be a great offer a year ago. Uh, can I switch? And the professor there said, look, I want you to come here. I want you to do what you want. But your undergraduate thesis would have been the best PhD thesis in our department for the last 10 years. So take what you want, wow. figure out what you want to do, and let's get you out of here. Because we already know that you can do research, which is the thing we're trying to teach everybody how to do. So I took courses at the business school, the public policy school, the economics department, um, the psychology department, uh, as well as uh statistics. And so again, I continued what I was doing, but Partway through, I said, gee, if I continue this degree, I'm going to be a statistician. Uh-huh. And what I could see in the world at the time, uh, which was back in the dark ages, um, before the internet, was the statisticians were sort of on the fourth floor of some building, and the decisions were all made on the 10th floor. <laughs> yeah. And I really wanted to have an impact on decisions. And so I was looking around. Um, for um, uh, a field where I thought my way of systematic thinking using math would give me some leverage on a problem that mattered, but in a way that people would pay attention to my recommendations so I could have an influence on decisions. Didn't want to be the decision maker, but I wanted to be somebody who could help with that and uh, that people would listen to. by happenstance, I met two graduate students at Harvard, mm-hmm. both of whom were uh, working on um, negotiation from completely different perspectives. One was uh, a uh, an anthropology graduate student named Bill Urey, who was actually at the time writing with Roger Fisher a book called Getting to Yes. Uh, Getting to Yes? Think, Getting to Yes, which is probably the undoubtedly the best-selling, it's one of the best-selling business books of all time, um, but it's certainly the best-selling negotiation book of all time. Uh, And he, you know, they came at it from a very different perspective. Roger Fisher was a law professor. And then there was an honorary program at Harvard called RIAS, Research Initiation and Support. Somebody funded in the days when the National Science Foundation had money to support people who were doing, I think, unconventional things doing math, using math. And so it was, it was run by three professors, very well-known guys in sociology, biology, and economics, and um, had almost every professor at Harvard and MIT who used math in different ways, uh, not in like the natural sciences, but in economics, sociology, biomechanics. Um, and then he became a fellow of Rias they gave me an office next to some guy who was named Jim Sabanius, and he had just come back from the State Department and was working on trying to think about how to use economics to think about negotiation, complex negotiations. Mm-hmm. And so as I started to talk to him and to Bill Urey, I said, this is a great field. They said, you would be great in this field, not much of it yet. Uh, but there's a terrific professor at Harvard Business School named Howard Rafer. You mm-hmm. should take his course. Howard was also a statistician by training, but had, you know, decision trees. He invented decision mm-hmm. trees.
2: Oh, wow. Um,
1: okay. And, you know, the book, he wrote a book on decision analysis. Very influential guy, incredibly smart, lovely man. So I took his course. And partway through, there was a case that came up about, um, uh, it's about coal mining in Papua New Guinea. And he did a little decision tree. And he said, and the, and the, the, the trick with, coal, with the copper mining is, you, you know, you say, what country should I enter? Once you enter, um, you dig a five and you make a deal with the company for how much country for your tax, how much right. you're going to pay taxes. And then you, you spend $500 million digging a hole in the ground. And then the country comes back to you and says, we want to renegotiate your tax regime. And so Howard put that up, which is with some probability they renegotiate, that's a branch on the tree, but some probability they don't. He said, that's a risk. So when you negotiate your original deal with the country, you need to charge a risk premium. You charge something for the risk that they'll renegotiate. So I put up my hand, not having ever taken a business school course, and said, "You know, Professor Raifa, you know, I agree with I agree entirely with what's on your decision tree, except, so I think your analysis is 100% correct, but your conclusion is 100% wrong.
0: You said that? And wow. Yes,
1: <laughs> I didn't realize that you weren't supposed to say that in business school uh, uh, things. But what I pointed out to him was that the probability of renegotiation was actually a function of copper price. And so what you should actually be doing is charging lower tax rates when copper prices are high. And higher tax, it'd be paying higher, lower tax rates when top uh, sorry, higher tax rates when top prices are high, lower ones when they're low. So your risk profile is better, but you don't stimulate, you, you're always paying a little bit more when prices are high, so you don't stimulate the, you reduce the probability of renegotiation. So that was my first published paper in negotiation. Then uh, I wrote, instead of a final exam, I wrote a paper that also got published. And so I said, this is an easy field. Nobody knows anything. <laughs> uh, and I can see that if I can get good at it, I can give advice to people. And so that's how I entered the field with my friends, Yuri and Sabanius. Uh, and then taking, and then as Howard Rafa hired me to be a professor at Harvard business school. So that's the journey, you know, and the fact that I did math and statistics was and structured reasoning was part of what got me there. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, you know the fact that it was a sort of a new field and people didn't know anything would seem very promising.
0: That is pretty uh, and, cool. Yeah, and I've loved doing it. You uh, so my that was going to be my question: How did a statistician turn into a negotiator? I guess yeah. you became more of a professional negotiator or or, or a person uh, that focused on negotiation right. in your career. Can you tell us a little bit about sure. the Harvard journey and then also outside of Harvard a sure. little
1: bit? So at Harvard, so at Harvard Business School. What Sabanius and I did was set up something called the negotiation roundtable. And we said, there's, you know, psychologists and economists and game theorists and some other political scientists who work on negotiation, but most of them work on these idealized negotiations, you know, two parties, one issue, and then you try to work out, you know, depending on who knows what information, you work out the Nash equilibrium and That's supposedly the outcome of the negotiation. Real real life doesn't seem that way. And in fact, it's much more complex. And so what we did is we analyzed uh, Harvard Business School, Kennedy School, other schools, cases that seem to involve negotiation. We tried to understand them and build a framework for thinking about them that extended well beyond what you got from game theory or psychology or even decision analysis. And we were also looking at internal negotiations. One of the things we understood was that as we looked at these cases, that it was often harder to reach agreement internally than externally when you're doing a deal, that the internal negotiations needed to be synchronized with the external ones. And so we thought about how to think about being a manager in an organization as somebody who is dealing with a bunch of interlinked negotiations for what you need to accomplish, for what resources you have. Then you're negotiating with people to execute on your behalf, who are right. having that same negotiation with you. And so after looking at hundreds of cases, and if we would call and invite people in who are involved in negotiations in the world, and everybody wants to come to, to Harvard to talk. So right. they would just, they would be willing to come. And we would asked them, we'd sort of grill them on, okay, here's the negotiation. Why did you do this? What happened, et cetera. Uh, we wrote The Managers Negotiate, um, which is actually, a, I have to say, a terrific book, but will, uh, and is still in use quite a bit uh, in uh, business schools and public policy schools. Um, although I, I think it's, it's not the easiest reading book and will, um, if insomnia is a problem, buy the book. Um, <laughs> but it's really very thorough and analytical. Um, and uh, I think it's cited all the time because we introduced a lot of uh, some interesting ideas. I don't know the people actually re- who cited actually read the book. They just know that we got some of the basic ideas laid out clearly. Right. Um, but so that was and then. I decided that what I wanted to do thereafter, so after I'd studied all these negotiations and we'd get called for advice a little bit, but we didn't, I think I wasn't confident that I knew that much about the world and how negotiations happen in the world, even having done all those cases and uh, and talked to people. So I, I asked some of my Harvard Business School colleagues to introduce me to folks who would give me pay me to go negotiate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, Uh, one of my colleagues, Howard Stevenson introduced me to somebody who ran a little investment bank that was focused on heavily unionized industries like, uh, airlines and railroads and food and commercial service and things like that. And, um, and so he said, you know, he said, you're a bright guy, you can, um, come work with me and you'll figure it out. And then you'll take the smaller clients so I can concentrate on the bigger ones. That sounds fine. Um, I did learn a lot from him. He was a complicated guy. And, I, you know, at the end of a year, I, I decided that it was, He was. it felt like he was a little threatened by me, even though <laughs> I was in his firm working for him. And right. so I I got a job uh, with a wealthy it's Canadian family. They had a New York investment arm. Sure. And basically for five years or so, analyzed deals, negotiated them, sat on the boards of the companies we bought or invested in. Um, and there, I, you know, what I would call what they did is sort of private equity without a explicit uh, strategy or mandate. So sure. what we really did was anywhere in the capital structure, if we could find, get excess risk adjusted returns at any point in the capital structure, we would invest and then we typically finance that out. Uh, and that was the kind of deal we did. Um, and so you analyze a lot of deals to, uh, um, to do a few, which was fine. And, and um, so, and we, you know, we, they ranged from smaller venture capital like deals to, you know, I worked on the buyout of the largest company in Israel, which oh. we didn't buy. Uh, and I'm, my advice was don't do it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was in the, portrait picture on the front page or on the business page of the Jerusalem post as an evil capitalist. Um, <laughs> yes. and, uh, yeah. Um, because we were looking at privatizing the biggest company in Israel,
2: oh, um,
1: yeah. in, in any case, which other people did and did very well with, but I don't think my the family I work for would have been able to have the political pull mm-hmm. to do some of the things that were needed in any case. So that, that was where I made the transition. And then I said, um, uh, you know, so that I started, I had now six years of experience and I then said, what do I want to do with, next with my life?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the answer was not go back to being a full-time professor. Like, mm-hmm. in fact, not working for anybody. I got a job from another very wealthy family job offer. And I decided that I would just not work for anybody again. And sure. I have not, um, And but what I did is say you know I I like working with the smaller companies, and I like giving advice. And so I do half my life, um, half my time would be spent uh, advising companies in bigger companies in negotiation, who would pay me hopefully a lot of money. And Mm -hmm. then I would either and then I would help people start or build small companies. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, And
1: and I did that, um, you know. So we started advising and working with um, big clients: Diageo, started as Guinness, Royal Dutch Shell, um, American Express. This, you know, some big companies hired us uh, for help of different kinds. And then I brought my partner, my co-author Sabanius, into the company. And we formed Black Sabanius, but I started it on my own first. And mm-hmm. then I helped raise money for and. You know, facilitate the, the the business of a company that did tertiary, you know, uh, waste management. You know, like sewage sort of secondary and tertiary treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that company got sold. Then I helped start a
0: quantitative hedge fund. So, David, what led you to write your second book, The Three D Negotiation? That's a good question. Since my most of my life at that point
1: was spent advising companies in negotiations. My colleague, Sabanius, had actually worked with Pete Peterson and Steve Schwartzman as they founded Blackstone. He spent right. six years or eight years at Blackstone before going back to Harvard to accept a tenured professorship. Um, and uh, But one of the things that both Sabanius and I saw was that all of the books on negotiation, and to a large extent, ours, missed something very important. Um, so... When we were writing Manager's Negotiator, we said, "Should we have a party a chapter on parties?" And we said, "No. Everybody knows who the parties are to a negotiation." Okay. Having spent six plus years, you know, six years negotiating deals, and then a number of years advising in deals, what we came to understand was that the setup of the negotiation, who the parties are, what they think is at stake what they think will happen if there's no agreement, those are often choice variables. And so the people who do really well in negotiations tend to set up the game in a way that has a much higher probability of producing good outcomes. And what I'll discuss with you in a little bit is negotiations that we advised in, where we helped the client make $100 million or save $100 million from what they thought they were going to get, or 11 in I, I've got an example. So we helped them make $11 million in the morning. Um, first time I worked with that client, they've hired us for 20 straight years. Uh, but uh, and, and but I think the, the point is that that all, most of that comes from getting the setup right. We'll talk about what that means. Yeah. But when we thought about that, we said we have a different slant on negotiation, which is simultaneously more sophisticated and more useful and more effective than what everybody else is has been writing about. Sure. And so it was combining the academic expertise we had with actual years of doing negotiations sure. uh, that made a difference. And the other thing we noticed was most people who write books about negotiation, either are academics. Mm-hmm. And so the examples they use in their books are often buying a house, you know, mm-hmm. buying a car, sure. because that's the kind of negotiation they do. But they, and they develop elaborate theories, or there were people with a lot of experience in negotiation, but no capacity to build generalizable uh, propositions about how to do better that were actually yeah. really sensible. And so we were trying to do, we were trying to come up with um, things that were use simultaneously useful and systematic, you know, theoretically sound, sure. but useful. And that's where we, that's what we return to write 3D negotiation.
0: That's brilliant. So, so maybe can we talk about the three building blocks of the book? Sure. Yep. So
1: what we're going to do is I'll tell you about the three, uh, building blocks of negotiation and how you use them. So first is parties.
0: So hence, three, hence 3D negotiation, just yes. to clarify for the right. listeners.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I mean by 3D. Okay. Um, but, uh, so you know, the first important thing, as I said, is you know parties to a negotiation. So who are they? Who's influenced by the negotiation? Who might be influenced by the negotiation? And therefore, and who might have leverage on the people who are actually at the negotiation? We'll talk about that in, in a little bit. Um, but with each of these parties, you wanna think about what do they care about? You know, and that's uh, probably, you know, people say, well, they care about making a profit or reduce driving costs. but you know, when I'm negotiating with a company, I'm actually negotiating with people, and right. I want to understand what do they care about. So, how do they get their? In the U.S., I think about their bonuses. What's their what's their bonus plan? Uh, how do they get promoted? Uh, in you know, and I work with companies in Sweden. There's you know, the salaries are flat. You know, you've been there in, in over years, so that isn't what drives them. But something else may drive them. You know, when I'm working with. Uh, a uh, company who's negotiating with regulators. I say, you know, is this regulator a career bureaucrat, in which case they care about having things be the same as before, or are they a politician on the rise, in which case they want to put their stamp on something new and different. So I really want to understand what they care about and what matters to them. And those are their interests. And some of those things are economic, like I want to get paid more, but some of them are non-economic. I want prestige from this. I want to get credit.
2: Right.
1: Um, I want this to look like a good deal. Um, and, and you know, so for example, um, I worked on a deal with a for a client where a um, they had a serious investor who was something of a corporate raider, uh, uh-huh. but also in their business and. He came out and said, I'm gonna block a merger that you wanna do unless you, um, in effect, pay me 3 billion pounds of greenmail." Um, didn't use those words, but that was essentially transfer all the synergy of the merger to him. And uh, we developed an elaborate strategy which pretty much defeated that. But I said to the CEO of my client, I've read the dossier. I've studied all the deals this other guy has done. Mm-hmm. If you read the New York Times and the Financial Times, and the Wall Street Journal of Forbes, he's a winner every time he does this. Mm-hmm. Okay. In reality, if you dig beneath the surface, he isn't mm-hmm. always. He's done great. So no, uh, but he needs the appearance of victory. And so when you right. do the press conference with him, you need to let him look like he won. The deal we do with him, we're going to win but he needs the appearance of Victor. Interesting,
0: okay. Um, and this that is was not, This is not a famous uh, investor that we all kind of see in CNBC, is it? Can you disclose? Uh, I don't want to say the uh, name.
1: No, but it's a well-known guy.
0: Okay, okay. Uh,
1: in any case, uh, so, um, so you think about the interests of people, they're complex, you have to really think that through. And then the last building block um, is, the no agreement alternative. What will happen if we don't make agreements? Um, and so I'm just gonna give you this little consulting case that I described. Uh, I had a client that um, had the US distribution rights for a foreign product. And they the the foreign manufacturer had said, uh, you, you market it in the US, you do all this stuff, but for our tax reasons, we want this to be a perpetual agreement had to do with you know, foreign tax law. Okay. And so this wasn't a five year agreement, it was a forever agreement. Sure. Um, the, 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 the manufacturer saw that another brand, another foreign company was doing much better in the US market than they were. And so sure. they started to get unhappy and they, they had lawyers sending letters to my client, basically saying, you're not doing a good job. But what they were really doing was setting it up to demand, say, we can sue you to terminate this perpetual agreement. Um, and so they asked me, my client said, what do we do with this? And they said, we've done our analysis and pretty much if we terminate according to the terms of the agreement, we'll have to write them a $3 million check. Okay. Uh, I said, okay, let's think about this. So parties, I didn't really worry about so much because it was, you know, we kind of knew that here. Um, but I said, What do they care about? They said, "Well, they want to get a check as much of a check as possible, big a check as possible, Mm -hmm. and they want to get out of this." Mm -hmm. And I said, "Just tell me now, what happens when they transfer distributors? If you're mad and you don't feel well treated, what happens?" And they said, "Well, in our industry, that could set you back for years. You know, you you could lose your growth in the market for years, Mm -hmm. and so that." I said, so now what you're telling me is what these people care about isn't just the size of the check. What they really care about is the growth of their brand. Right. And so they have an interest in the growth of their brand. And so I said, here's what I want you. To. So and so I said, no agreement. My, my friends, Bill, Yuri, and Roger Fisher coined the term BATNA, best alternative to a negotiated agreement. Mm-hmm. When we think about the BATNA, the best alternative to a negotiated agreement, um, you know, <clears throat> you know, it's like a transfer. We have to give them back the brand mm-hmm. and maybe write a check. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, you were, in this case, it would be go to court. They'd sue us to terminate. So I said, so how's that going to work for them? You'd be unhappy that they sued you. Mm-hmm. And so I said, here's what you should say to um, the, to your manufacturer. Mm-hmm. You should say, look, we're, you know, we signed a perpetual agreement uh, based on your desires, and we've been investing behind, behind that agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think we can make a lot of money for you and a lot of money for us. And in effect, and I asked my client to come up with the biggest amount of profit that they thought they would make from this customer that they could justify with a straight face.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, uh, you know, so that it was defensible, uh, but aggressive. Uh, and you know, so they, I asked them to go back and say, look, we're big boys. We understand you're unhappy with us. Maybe you don't want us to be your distributor anymore. But right. we invested on behalf of this relationship for, you know, for the future. And so we're more than happy to, uh, uh, <clears throat> we're, we're more than happy to terminate the relationship as long as you compensate us for lost profits for the investments we made you know, in the anticipated oh. profits, which was about $15 million. And uh, the other side was sort of taken aback because they were expecting to get a check. Was,
0: that, not up... the, what, was that $15 million initial investment uh, not in the agreement or the clause? No, the, no, it,
1: the $15 million was the anticipated profit Got uh, it. that they would get from this relationship. And I think that was the number. Anyway, at the end of the day, the... Client instead of paying three million dollars got a check uh, for eight million dollars, so net swing of eleven million dollars. Basically, it was a half day of me working with the basic building blocks of negotiation. What, are, who are the parties? What are their interests? What's their BATNA? And then explaining to them, you know, if you sue us, you're going to have bad transitions. Right. It's going to cost you way more than that because. Right you know, somebody who gets sued probably isn't going to naturally transfer over and invest in the best way, um, the brand. Right. And so that's simple, you know, there's just the parties' interest, BATNA, thinking about it seriously, and then translating it into, you know, the right tactics produced um, a pretty attractive outcome. As I said, that company has hired us over the years, last twenty years, when when they have complex or messy negotiations, they mm-hmm. keep calling, uh, and I've, we've made them hundreds of millions of dollars. Did, um,
0: did this client do any more business with this foreign manufacturer after this? Well, no, because settlement. they switched.
1: They terminated the agreement. They, they said instead of terminating, they just said, "Okay, we'll let you go." Right. You know, with this, with our termination agreement. So no, they didn't, um, and wouldn't have anticipated. Uh, in any case, so that's really the building blocks for 3D negotiation. And so now you said, let me tell you what 3D, you know, what 3D negotiation yeah. is. Okay.
0: What it, yeah. How did so, you
1: coin that? So so most people, when they think about negotiation, they imagine two people or a few people <laughs> at a table. Right. And it's about interpersonal communication and tactics and reading body language and things like that. Right. Okay. We think of that as the first dimension, which we'll call tactics. That's almost always necessary to do well. I mean, you don't, if I insult you or, you know, there's a great example of some American company that engineering firm that brought a proposal to Saudi Arabia for some big uh, uh, engineering construction job in a pigskin binder.
0: Um, Um, Wow. Okay. doesn't work very (laughs) well in Saudi Arabia. They got thrown out of the country. That's basically. a cultural faux pas, right there.
2: Right, yeah.
1: and so you need to get the tactics and the interpersonal communication right. Um, but that's that's what people think of, uh, and we call that the first dimension. It's important, but not where you get most of the leverage in negotiation. Mm-hmm. Our colleagues at Harvard in the 80s, the guys who wrote Getting T.S., yes, uh, observed something that you know they had an epiphany, which was the world isn't zero sum. Mm-hmm. And then, in fact, I could give you things that are highly valuable to you in return for things uh, that are highly valuable to you, but low cost for me to give. Makes you happy in mm-hmm. return for something that's highly valuable to me, but low cost for you to give. So mm-hmm. both of us will be better off. The pie will be bigger. We think about that as, you know, designing deals to create value. And there's a lot of ways to do that. So it's not just low value. Um, there's. You know, if you have a high discount rate and I have a low one, we get you more of the early profits. I get the later profits. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If you're scared of certain risks that I'm not scared of, I can take them in return for you taking other risks or paying me more. There's a right yeah. or in the deal that I described to you uh, about the uh, corporate raider who liked to right. look like a winner, right. we traded substance of the deal for appearance of the deal. Uh, He valued appearance, we valued substance. So there's a lot of ways to make the pie bigger if you think creatively about that. And we actually have an entire book, two book chapters on that. Uh, uh, So, uh, and we think that people do that, good negotiators do that pretty well, but not systematically. And so that level of negotiation, which is almost an analytical exercise away from the table, you know, after I understand what you care about, how you value time, how you value risk, things like that, I, you know, almost a third party could construct a value claiming deal, value creating deal.
0: We call that deal design. Got it. So is, is setup different than deal design? Yes. So the third so, dimension is what we so call setup. So why does setup matter? You already okay. know who the parties are. Why, why isn't uh, negotiation well, all about right. tactics?
1: Well, as I said, part of what uh, we discovered in actually studying negotiations and doing them was that um, you don't know who the parties are. I'll give you uh, an interesting story. The parties are often something you can choose.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: So uh, we we read an article in in the Wall Street Journal about a guy named Joe Batchel, who was Uh a um, lawyer in New York. his entire practice, he had a law firm just devoted to helping CEO candidates negotiate compensation from publicly traded companies or private equity. And
2: companies, mm-hmm.
1: And so he started, he had uh, people who read all the 10 K's. So they know what everybody got paid and all the dimensions they got paid. Um, he had mathematicians who could value options packages. Um, and so firm firm uh, just specialized on that, specialized on that. And, and, uh, we gave him a call and said we'd love to talk with you, and um, you know about what you you know, what you do. And he told us this story, uh, and uh, basically his client was a senior executive at a large chemical company who could see that the writing on the wall. He wasn't going to become the CEO of the of that company, mm-hmm. and he had been approached by a smaller chemical company to become the CEO. So they would made a short list. They'd interviewed him and some other people. And they'd selected him and they were now gonna negotiate. Um, and they set aside a weekend for that because the guy was still on the job at his other company. Uh, but before that, he prepared with Batchelder in terms of what he could get and so forth. Um, and uh, you know, and there are many, many, many different ways in which CEOs get, uh, publicly traded companies can get compensated. Sure. Um, and uh, they went through it and then the, they met with the company. The board of the company had uh, appointed the general counsel as the negotiator for the company. And the first day, Saturday, they went in and the general counsel staked out the low side of reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Joe Batchelder laid out the high side of reasonable and they went about uh, elaborating their positions and the justifications for them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at the end of the day, the CEO candidate said to Joe, "Gosh, that didn't go well. I mm-hmm. guess th- this job isn't going to happen."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Batchelder turned to him, you know, said, "We got tomorrow, but just relax. You're going to get everything that you want." Wow! And the CEO candidate said, "Wait a minute, isn't this guy knowledgeable?" Uh, and Batchelder said, "Yes, he is. Is he a faithful steward for the company's interest? Yes, he is." Um, isn't he uh, an able negotiator? he said, yeah, he is. So why do you think I'm gonna get everything I want? And Batchelder Mm -hmm. turned to him and said, because he's gonna work for you and he knows that. Oh. And and so the point is that if you analyze carefully what the interests of the general counsel, the last thing in the world you wanna do is enter the new employment relationship with your CEO pissed off at you that his salary and his options aren't package aren't good enough. Right. Um, and so that's the 1D tactical observation. Sure. Um, but Batchelder told us that something at the time, 60% of public companies put in the general counsel or somebody else who worked at the company to do this negotiation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you said instead of using the general counsel, you could send it out to your the law firm you use. Latham and Watkins say. Sure. Um, they would have the same problem, which is they don't want to piss off the new CEO because he could replace them with another right, firm. Right. Once exactly. He comes in.
0: Yeah. Conflict. So, of you,
1: yeah. So, so you need to bring in somebody who isn't concerned about the future relationship with the CEO. Right. And the point is that the choice, the party, who the parties are, is a choice variable. So They could have appointed a law firm or uh, another firm that specializes just in this kind of negotiation and therefore never expects to try to get business from the company. Um, You could use a board member who won't be beholden to the CEO. Right. Uh, Right. But who the parties are is a choice variable and that's going to affect the outcome. With a different choice, the CEO wouldn't be getting everything he asked for. Right. on the high side of reasonable. But some something like 60% of American companies were at the time, and it's probably still true, making that mistake in terms of getting the setup right, who the parties are. So you have to choose who you want to have as a party uh, to the negotiation. Um, and I'll, I'll describe uh, another negotiation later with a, a regulator where we were thinking about who influences the people who are making the decisions and how do we get them involved in the negotiation to affect the outcome? So Mm -hmm. who you want to think expansively about who the parties are. And I'll talk about that in a little more Mm -hmm. uh, detail, but the setup involves who the parties are, Mm -hmm. what interests they think are at stake in the negotiation. What will happen if there's no agreement? Um, You know, for example, if I'm negotiating to do a deal with you, mm-hmm. um, you may say, gee, I could do a deal with you or I could do a deal with X. Um, so I'm gonna p- negotiate you know, with you and X. Um, and instead, if I do a, a joint venture with X first and come talk to you, no mm-hmm. agreement for you is a lot less attractive. Mm-hmm. And i want to describe an interesting uh, negotiation that Jim and I were involved in years ago <laughs> has a bit of that character so we got a call uh from a company in in the midwest uh uh, we're in um, chicago area that was in the auto parts business Mm -hmm. and 100 up and down the line everybody in the company was engineers Mm -hmm. um And they decided that they wanted to build a plant in Mexico to service the auto companies that were growing in Mexico as Maquiladora plants and so forth. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they um, made a list of all the auto parts companies that were relevant and made a list. They ranked them best company, one, two, three, four, and so on. And the biggest and best company we'll call company number one Second biggest was close, but not as big. Still quite good, so both of them were quite good. Number three, it's much smaller, above the line, but not that much above the line. Sure. So they went to Mexico, and they sent a team to negotiate with company number one, and they, the team wasn't, they didn't have a a senior person. They sent a bunch of engineers to talk about the the deal. They didn't have a senior executive down there. They didn't have anybody who spoke Spanish. And they found themselves waiting outside the CEO's door for several hours, which doesn't happen so much in Latin America now, but it did then. Sure. And um, they had this meeting. They said, let's get right to business. They didn't talk about their families. um, And uh, they talked about the potential for a joint venture. And what they, at the end, they went back, they you know, said goodbye, uh, and then the, the Mexican company really wasn't responding to their inquiries. So they realized they'd done something wrong and they hired a cultural coach mm-hmm. for the next negotiation. You know, they said, well, let's start with the first, then we'll go to the second, then we'll go to the third, because that seems like the most mm-hmm. efficient process. You mm-hmm. know, Go with the best, second best, third best. Um, <clears throat> and so they'd screwed up on the first best, going to the second best, and they learned that when you go, went to Mexico in that time, you should have somebody speak Spanish. You should expect to spend some time uh, talking about your families and your life before you get to business. Sure. Uh, think about all the people who you know who might be interconnected. And, right. uh, activate those kind of mechanisms. And so they did that the second time. And they had better conversations, but they again found that company number two wasn't really engaging with them in a serious negotiation.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: in terms of the setup, one of the elements is the BATNA, the best, each party's best alternative to a negotiated right. agreement. At this point, their BATNA felt like it's either, co- we're negotiating with company number three or nothing. So it's not getting to Mexico. right? And You know, then, you know, I asked them, so like, do you think company number three knows this? Now, they're all the companies in that industry are in
0: Monterey. Right, right.
1: Everybody in Monterey knows that you were there. Right. Companies number one and two. And if you called me. Right. It's not working with companies number one and two. Right. So you have no BATNA. They know it. Let's negotiate.
0: Okay.
1: Terrible situation. Right. And so then I said, let's step back. Did company number two say no to you,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they ever say no? And the answer is, no, they hadn't. I said, right. I want you to go down to company number three, but I want you to stop at company number two along the way. And <clears> maybe <throat> even ask for directions to the neighborhood of company number three right. when you're there. Um, and you know what happened is, so that's what they did. And then company number two thought about it and said, wow, if they do a deal with company number three, Company number three will be as big as we are. So we'll now have a real competitor. Right. So company number two called back and said, we want to talk about negotiating. Right. Company number one heard that we were negotiating company number two seriously. And our client did the deal with company number one. Wow. Uh, so the interesting thing there is an important part of the setup is parties, interests, FATNA, but then it's, Sequence and process orchestration. So who right. do you talk to about what, in what order? Um, will have a big effect on the outcome. The way that we structured it, party number, company number two's BATNA wasn't don't do a deal. It's somebody else is, they'll do the deal with number three. Right. When it looked like we were doing a deal with number two, company number one's BATNA was, you know, not no deal. It was competitor will be bigger than
0: Right, that. right.
1: Uh, and so uh, that the setup, how you set it up and you know who you talk to in what order about what has a big effect on the outcome. Uh, and you know it made that you know it would have made them say yes to deals they might not have said yes to, otherwise because sure. of the way you structured it. Um, now you could have also structured this deal <clears throat> so that, like an investment bank selling a company, you're in one room at the law firm, you're in another right. and you're in the third room you know, and they go back and forth between them. So you could have done it instead of sequentially, you could have done it in parallel.
0: Sure, sure. Uh,
1: Even better than that, you could have called the Mexican uh, Department of Commerce and said, make us a list of the best companies for this and then organize a meeting where they present their bona bona fides, that they tell us why they'd be the best partner.
0: Why they're the best partner, yeah. uh,
1: And so the point is that what's great engineering logic, you know, Mm -hmm. best first, might not be the best logic for how to do it. Right. It's not the best, it's not the correct negotiating logic. And that how you set things up has a big effect on what the outcomes will be.
0: Got it. And
1: so the third dimension is getting the, is the setup. Getting the right parties, talking about the right issue, in, you're facing the right set of interests, taste, feeling the right set of BATNAs or no agreement alternatives. And then with the sequence and process designed to drive it to good outcomes. And brilliant. what we found was when we read the negotiation literatures, the academic literature, nobody talked about that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The third dimension. Mm-hmm. And if you look at great negotiators, they do it. They are active in the third dimension. Henry Kissinger was a brilliant 3D negotiator
2: mm-hmm.
1: focused on the third dimension. Bruce Wasserstein. Who was a one the leading investment banker? I'd say in the eighties. Right. Um, and, um, he was a masterful three D negotiator.
0: The Lazard uh, CEO. Oh well,
1: yeah, he took over Lazard. Mm-hmm. He became CEO. Of, he first was at First Boston, and I think he uh, when I was looking for a job as an investment banker, mm-hmm. I talked with him. Okay. Were, the investment bank at First Boston was him and one other guy, Wasserstein, um, and then uh, they formed Wasserstein Perella. And then that got bought by Allianz, I believe. And then he went to Lazard. And we have studied some of the negotiations that were involved in his taking control of Lazard. And it's brilliant 3D negotiation. So it's not that great negotiators do this, but they do it intuitively, not systematically, which means Mm -hmm. that they miss it some of the time. But most people, most good negotiators don't. And most negotiators don't at all. Mm -hmm. And so taking this approach of saying, how do we set the negotiation up to give us the highest probability of getting a good outcome is something that gives people, gives our clients great advantages in negotiation that they wouldn't otherwise have. Got it.
0: So David, uh, could you share some of your high profile commercial uh, negotiations with us? Sure. So you have to understand
1: that almost everything I do is subject to an NDA and I'd have to give away my firstborn child. Yes. <laughs> um, but there are two or three that my clients have talked about and I'll describe a couple. One was a negotiation between Guinness, um, uh, which was our client. They'd, they'd offered to made an agreement to merge with Grand Metropolitan to form effectively the largest liquor company in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bernard Arnault of LVMH. LVMH was a 21% shareholder of Guinness said, I'm going to block this merger unless you um, essentially transfer a lot of the synergy to me, won't discuss the mechanism for that. Um, And so we had two assignments there. One was to help uh, Guinness negotiate with Bernard Arnault uh, while keeping the, the merger together. And then also negotiate with the EU competition commission because we were creating the biggest liquor company in the world. Mm-hmm. Second, more recent negotiation, Bill Urey and I negotiated, uh, we represented um, a Brazilian uh, entrepreneur, Abilio Denise sort of a cross between uh, Sam Walton and Donald Trump.
2: Oh, really?
1: uh, yeah. Very colorful character who uh, had created the biggest retail, the biggest food retailer in brazil also the biggest employer in brazil and it okay. sold first 49 percent of it and then two percent of it to a french food retailer uh called casino run by a um, french billionaire named uh jean charles nary brilliant guy mm-hmm. and as far as i could tell um and they're fighting and they, they were in lawsuits over how to you know how control was going to pass over Lawsuits in the EU, lawsuits in Brazil, maybe in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Casino had a history of doing this kind of creeping transaction and then alleging fraud or alleging bad behavior on the part of the seller and trying to get the last 49% at uh, a discount. Um, and so we actually negotiated that deal uh, on behalf of uh, Abelio, because Mm -hmm. he was just so emotionally wound up that he couldn't almost stay in the same room as the people he was negotiating with. And we ended up with uh, Baron David de Rothschild as the representative of a casino. And so we negotiated with him uh, for the most part. And so that's another high profile deal that our involvement was actually uh,
0: publicly disclosable. Sure. So we're almost uh, nearing the end here, but I'd like to ask you about the human behavioral side of negotiations. We talked about the tactical stuff and the designs, the 3Ds. What about some of the human elements, the holistic Sure.
1: So, you know, again, as I said, very important, you know, typically to get the interpersonal part of it right. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not what saves you $100 million when you're negotiating a deal, but it can blow a deal. Right. Uh, you know, i give you the you know, pigskin example. Um, and, and, but what's interesting is people often think that um, they have to concede substantively in deal terms to have a good relationship with their counterpart. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we and other people, uh, Jared Curhan and uh, some others at MIT, done some actually very interesting work where you ask people as how likely are you, you know, to want to work with this person again?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So we have them do a negotiation exercise and then we say scale of one to five, five being we love them and want to work with them all the time. One, we'd like to shoot them and never see them again. <laughs> yes. uh, uh, you know, how, how, how do you feel about working with these guys again? And then what right. you discover is, that except for people who are completely squeezed to their baton, mm-hmm. um, there's effectively no correlation between the substantive outcome,
2: mm-hmm.
1: who, who did well, better or worse in the negotiations, mm-hmm. and how likely they want to work with you again. And then mm-hmm. if you look at it, you discover that what matters is um, two or three things, but did they, you know, did they listen to me? Did mm-hmm. they ask questions? Mm-hmm. Were they empathetic? Mm-hmm. There's a very different, great difference between empathetic. You can be empathetic and assertive. You can say, let me uh, understand what you care about. Let me make sure I understand. And so behaviorally, <clears throat> a very important part of negotiation is genuinely being interested in trying to understand the situation on the other side. Their constraints, um, and their interests and how they think about the world um, and being respectful in terms of how you speak to them um, and not insult them gratuitously, which people right. do all the time. Right. Um, and if you do that, they will want to work with you again. And that's completely independent of how, you know, the fact that you've done very well in negotiation because it's hard for people to know how well they did. And so in part, they judge it by how the interaction felt. Right. Was it cooperative? Was it reasonable? Do right. um, they, they seem to listen to me and so forth? And so that's why, you know, behaviorally, it's very important to listen, to learn, a variety of other reasons why it's important to do that. But in terms of how you want people leaving the negotiation, feeling like you cared about them, you listened to them, you tried to accommodate certain things. And uh, so very important to make sure that that's something you do and you treat people with respect. You know, seems not a difficult thing to ask but people often don't do it
0: right no thank you for that advice coming from you um i think the viewers would uh would benefit from that i I agree um so we're we're almost done here but last question david what does success mean to you okay so uh, i actually give a talk on how to think about career
1: career trajectory over time Uh and uh you know, because I'm a mathematician, statistician at core, <laughs> I always start with how do you define the variable? And you go to the end and look back. You say, how, did, how would I know if I succeeded when I was mm-hmm. seven? <clears throat> um, and, uh, and then how do I, you know, how do I construct a path to get there? But success for me is saying, you know, I'm in a, I have, I have a, uh, and most people spend most of their adult life work, waking adult life Mm -hmm. work, And so success has three characteristics. One is that you're doing something where you wake up doing what you're going to want doing, wanting to do what you're going to do that. Mm -hmm. So it's the morning wake up test. Mm -hmm. So I wake up excited about what I'm doing, knowing that of course every job has some junk in it that you have to do. Right. The, Second thing is the world rewards me well by however I define uh, well. So if I'm an investment banker, I may care most about my bonus, my compensation. If I'm a professor, I may care about autonomy uh, and um, having good colleagues. If I'm working as a bio, you know, uh, gen- genomists, I may care about having great colleagues and working mm-hmm. on exciting research projects. So rewards are different for different people and right. rewards change depending on the career paths that you take. But do, am I rewarded well for what I do? And the third thing, which is I think very important in terms of choosing what to do
2: mm-hmm. is
1: are. Um, uh, you know, am I good at it? Am I doing something that I'm good at it relative to other people? Mm-hmm. Uh, because when, if I'm not, I'm probably not going to feel like a success. and I'm not okay. going to enjoy what I do. The world may not be, re- may not reward me that well. And I right. probably won't want to wake up in the morning doing it. So right. it's sort of figuring out what you're good at relative to other people and applying it to problems that feel meaningful.
0: Excellent. Well, David, Mr.
2: Professor, thank you for your time today. Pleasure.